0: Welcome to the Thalberg Foundation's New Thinking for a New World podcast. In this episode, Rosario diaz Caravito, founder of the Millennials Movement, Baitu Gonker, founder of Art Represents, and David Ross, an environmental entrepreneur in waste energy, share their views on the millennial future of the post-COVID world with Alan Stoga, the chairman of the Thalberg Foundation.
1: Going to talk today about life after the coronavirus. You all have the advantage that most of your life is ahead of you. So let's just start with that very simple perspective. David, as you think about life after coronavirus and the world that is coming at us, are you optimistic or pessimistic?
0: I'm always an optimist. So I believe in, in, in the power of uh, forward thinking and um, not just forward thinking, but doing. I do believe, though, um, that the current administration, the U.S. administration, for that matter, may not have the wherewithal to get through this initial stage afterwards. But I do believe, as a as a society, as a world gets past COVID, um, there's a lot of interesting things that are going to happen. And uh, I also uh, believe that people are going to, uh, and individuals and companies are going to start driving and moving the needle uh, in the right direction afterwards.
1: Rosario you are a founder of the millennials movement which means by definition you're thinking about how millennials could contribute maybe force positive change is that how you look at the world that it's the potential for positive change is there
2: i i feel like optimistic i guess it's part of the part of the generation view you know towards the world um, and uh definitely then when the millennials movement started, that was the main thing. how this generation is able to take action to 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 be able to change the things to to make things happen you know, and in that way, I feel very optimistic in the way that I've seen many young people and, and other people, for instance, not that young taking action or doing the things that for me was surprising and in the way that I never thought the response was going to be that good, you know? Um, so in that way I'm optimistic. But also I I guess I'm worried as well because I see this as an opportunity, uh, as was mentioned before. Um, but the thing is that I'm worried about what is the next dynamic because the 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 our world was living in a one uh, dynamic and COVID-19 was a disruptive event and then decisions are going to be taken and I'm worried about, for instance, more nationalist feelings um, in the countries, in different countries. You know, in the case of my country, for instance, that's one of the feelings that is going to show because we realized our industry was not ready to respond to this. We didn't have the technology. Our agricultural sector was very weak and then... Is the response going to be, okay, let's try to build up in a world altogether, or let's try to close our, our minds and focus on our country and focus only on our people to do things better and be able to respond in the future? I don't know how is how that transition is going to go. And I, I I know some countries, uh, or this situation is also an opportunity for people who, for instance, or leaders that, for instance, are not willing to move their interests, so, or move some hate speech or, or, or other bad sentiments you know, within people. So that's something that worries me a lot in the near and in the future. Mm-hmm.
1: Beju, you bring the filter and the thinking of the art world uh, to these issues. Are you optimistic or pessimistic that this enormous reset that's coming as a result of the coronavirus is going to be a good thing or a bad thing?
3: I think personally, I'm an optimist by nature, uh, but I think I'm a realist through life experiences. And um, I think working with artists, I think uh, one thing that you realize is that creative people are eternally optimistic, although they, do see the world for what it is and I think looking back you see that um, throughout human history when there are huge moments of disruption and trauma uh, you get a period of renaissance and you get a period of massive creativity and I think perhaps a moment that yanks us out of the daily rhythm enables us to have a more philosophical approach to the, the issues that surround us, and I think it allows us to tap into a sort of suffering that makes us relate to others in a way that we perhaps cannot when we're living in our daily grind. In that way, I am optimistic. However, I'm cautious about, uh, you know, sort of expectations of a paradigm shift, Because I think, as Rosario said, at the moment, there is a lot of fear and there's a tendency, I think, when we feel threatened to want to go inward, uh, into our tribe, into people that we identify with, that we relate with, and you can see national policies, you can see public rhetoric that is bending towards the sense of isolation uh, and and the sense of... um, disengagement from the other which i think is wrong i think that could lead us down a dangerous road Um, i think from a climate perspective it's an interesting time because you know we talk about living in this incredibly globalized world and now we've had this massive interruption where that sense of globalization has impacted us all uh, i think more than it would have say, you know 50 years ago or a century ago at the same time is making us realize that perhaps things need to be more localized, but knowledge and I think intellectual property and you know medical findings, political discussions has to happen on a more international scale in order for us to come out of this together. Um, so I feel like we're at the cusp of an interesting time. And I think action and pivoting us towards the right direction is probably the key thing right now.
1: Let's talk a bit about that tension between the global and the local. The problems are global action is always local almost by definition. Do you think there'll be more opportunities out of this crisis to accelerate the kind of very practical stuff you're trying to do
0: uh, to make a contribution to change climate? I think uh, pre-COVID, You know, there was a B2B model. I mean, essentially, you, know, you went to the store to buy goods and services. You went to the grocery store. You know, you went out and about and, and had to go, you know, to your to shopping malls and stores alike. Uh, what's happening is post well, in the middle of COVID, is what we're moving into right now is really to a, a quintessential B2C model in which serving those that, because obviously with shelter in place, uh, quarantine, um, and not knowing when that actually is going to end, um, we're finding uh, local uh, opportunities where, like for instance in my neighborhood, where we're sourcing local eggs, um, we're sourcing local beer, or, or you know, local you know, people. We're moving almost into an 1800s time where you have now technology as well, and I think that's a very interesting paradigm shift, uh, and it's happened within a two two month period. Those that right now will innovate and bring the the services to the consumer at their residence. Um, is going to have a, a uh, those are the companies that are going to, that are changed. And as you're seeing right now, uh, big companies, the meat packing industries, the, the big department stores um, filing for bankruptcy or, or having major issues. I mean, it's, it's, it's affecting our distribution lines, uh, our logistics lines. So yeah, so what, you know, as far as uh, changing that, yeah, I think, I think having these multinational uh, uh, conglomerations of a few set of companies. I think it's going to be disbanded over time, and I think we're going to be moving into where uh, staying local, keeping it local, buying local, especially like right now when you're in in this, um, supporting local restaurants, supporting those people um, that are that are that are here, uh, is really a, a new trend that I'm I'm watching and I'm really liking because I think it has a lot of not only just economic benefits, but I think it also has some sustainable environmental benefits as well
1: the time when globalization seems to be coming apart at the seams. Uh, Rosario, you're, if the airlines ever allow you, headed back to Peru. Can you imagine a Peru that develops better in a world that isn't as globalized as the one we all thought we were going to live in? Or is this a potential tragedy for Peru?
2: Um, I guess there is an opportunity. Um, as you mentioned, uh, even though globalization had this message of let's move together towards a better world more interconnected where we have all the same benefits or better or we'd be better off we we need to understand that uh, not necessarily every single region or every single country was able to participate and have the same position on this process and the same opportunities so the fact that countries such as Peru were able to join or, or embark into globalization also made the country very dependable in many ways. And uh for instance the response we were giving was more as um to this globalization dynamic was more like, okay, we are going to provide uh, you know, um uh, natural resources, we are gonna provide these these specific things, we are gonna provide or just and food you know, but we were not necessarily working on developing our technology, working on strain as, or improving our regional responses Latin America we were not working on uh the scientific or, or research section you know um we were not working also or or improving or the or the labor rights of our people, you know, and when this kind of situation comes then we have a different paradigm. We are so dependable that we are not able to get respirators for our doctors. We are so dependable that we are not, that we we, we don't have the the dressing that they need, you know? So we are so dependable that, for instance, our industry has stopped in so many ways. So I heard the General Secretariat of the, Economic Commission for the Latin American and Caribbean region from ECLAC. Um, this is like the regional commission of the UN, and she said something that calls my attention a lot. She said this deglobalization process is also an opportunity for regions such as the Latin American region to rework or reimagine a regional response, you know. A regional interaction. Even though I love to be a global citizen, you know, I also see that the inequality on this dynamic of globalization was not necessarily um, the best thing for every single person or every single country or actor. So definitely I see opportunities in a non a globalized world as the one we had. I think globalization can, for instance, keep going, but with a different dynamic, you know, with a dynamic where we have better opportunities, where we are able to do things.
1: And I want to shift to fear and anger. You're all quite optimistic, thank God. Uh, but let's talk about fear and anger because there's a lot of both of those. The pandemic has made everybody. Afraid. How do we come out of this combination of anger and fear of the future? How does it change people?
3: I think, I think that fear is such an innate response, and at the moment, is is not an unreasonable one, especially given that uh, in most of the nations that we see, those who are in charge are not really making policies or decisions. That are coherent or uh, even useful or helpful. Um, I know that there's a lot of confusion at the moment in the UK since the last uh, press conference by Boris Johnson. No one quite knows what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, I know that the same feelings are reflected in the US. At the same time, I think on a smaller localized scale, I do see, you know, at least anecdotally what David was saying before, that there might be a lot of uh, tension and stress over losing jobs. Uh, Everyone is now beginning to know someone who um, is either in, you know, uh, the ICU or who has passed away from the virus. However, there is a sense of solidarity that bands around then smaller communities where you try to help each other, where you try to uplift each other. There are a lot of grassroots organizations in the UK that are helping uh, elderly people, people in care homes, people who are disabled, have access to food, have access to necessities and utilities. The amount of volunteers that came out on the first night that the government called out for volunteers for the National Healthcare Service uh, was really overwhelming. And then you see people who are actively making the effort to support local businesses that can still be open. And I think uh, those two things are not necessarily contradictory. I think the only solution to fear is action. I think anger is born out of an inability to act when fear strikes. I think the idea that you feel useless and powerless, I think that's what leads to anger. I think taking action even on a very small scale, being able to help, being able to feel like you have some minute control over some things is the way to move out of this. And I think that this um, is a great opportunity for people to uh really go back to grassroots actions to understand how smaller communities can build up share knowledge with each other and then for that to become sort of a wider scale national or even global action uh you talked about this sort of uh dichotomy between globalization and deglobalization i think that uh you know globalization has happened on two fronts i mean one is very much the material logistical you know sense of trading of supply chain of manufacturing but the other is you know the more intangible stuff the soft power the globalization of culture the globalization of, of ideas i think that uh, Everyone, you know, everyone who were in seats of power, who were policymakers, who were CEOs would say, it's impossible to do this because, you know, the world cannot continue. If we did this, if we cut this down, if we put in those measures, if we signed up to these protocols. And now we've been forced into a situation where it has had to stop. And of course, uh, we are, you know, going into probably one of the deepest recessions that we've seen. However, I think we've also been able to see that the world can stop so then it's a matter of where do we go from here and I think the globalization of the intangible stuff is going to be the thing that lifts us out of this the sharing of knowledge of culture of ideas of grassroots movements of being able to replicate things having open source technology um, all of that and people being able to feel like they can take action I think is what's going to lift us out of our fear and hopefully dissolve the anger over time
1: The world has stopped. You can see the stars again, uh, but you also have massive unemployment. You have rising hunger. You have clearly a lot of uh, abuse under these lockdown situations. We can't live under lockdown. David, you're a doer. You live in a world of doing something different. What kinds of things, from an energy point of view, from a climate point of view, can you imagine? Getting done now, that maybe weren't getting done before, Baizou just said that anger activates and fear freezes. How do we activate in this environment?
0: I mean, I think we have a, a a desire right now of the uncertainty the uncertainty of what's going on. I mean we're facing huge debt, corporate profits have never been uh, as high, but then you know wanting bailouts. Um, I think at the end of the day. You know, I'm a big promoter of entrepreneurial or, or environmental or sustainable entrepreneurship. And, and what that means is looking at the world around you and finding the gaps, finding the places that you say, hey, I think that I can solve that or I can fix that. Um, and what I've done in my career is put a vessel around that or a business around that. There's been a lot of opportunities that we haven't done anything with uh, or attacked. But I think at the end of the day, if, if you look at it and, and, you, and you look at the places where there's, there's needs assessment. And that could be in sustainability, energy efficiency, feeding people, being philanthropic. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to come out of this. And, and quite honestly, I've seen an immense push, especially with, with what I do with, the, with Copia, um, but, you know, uh, of philanthropic donations and people really taking this time uh, in this place right now to help others. I mean, right now we have 33 million people that are out of work here in the United States. I mean, that's happening globally around the world. Um, and what we're doing right now, um, donations and feeding people and getting that the volunteer drivers, getting restaurants to turn back on, all those things are just, it, it just if you take the, what's actually negative happening in the world and look at what's really happening right now, I'm proud of it. Um, I just think we need to take that energy and continue to keep driving. But when we come around the other side of this, let's educate people and get them uh, driving towards green business, green development, and, and sustainable movements that we can do that. And I think that if government puts the right amount of cash or puts in the right places the, around the world, we could see substantial, substantial changes.
1: Rosie, you are just finishing a degree and you have lots of friends who are in school, are about to leave school. How do people begin operating in this weird world that we've created for you?
2: Um, that's very interesting, actually, um, in a world where, you know, unemployment mostly on youths, it's, it triplicates the adults unemployment rate. So yeah, it's a preoccupation. Actually, I'm, I'm in that position right now, you know, <laughs> um, but I think, um, it's, uh, I mean, it will be easier for some people than others. Definitely uh if uh if if there is some young people that were able to have a network of um, organizations or friends or or people who for instance you know they were collaborating before and so on it's most likely that there will be some options and there 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 are some opportunities but not necessarily for for young students who are finishing school and suddenly they are in the pool we thousands of people who have lost their jobs and they want to get a job. So I think it's going to be a very challenging process. And the the uncertainty puts a lot of pressure, a lot of stress on our shoulders because young people is always being pushed to, you need to respond to the challenges. You need to, yeah, youths, you know, youths uh, need to move forward and so on. Yes, but I have a lot of uncertainties right now, you know. In some countries, we don't even have, like, unemployment uh, insurance, you know, or we don't have even health care access. So I think those are valid points for for us to think about. And definitely this this, this crisis has shown us a clear radiography or X-ray of many social dynamics and global dynamics that were going on, but we were not able to see them as clear as we are now. And now that we are seeing that, for instance, our health system are so precarious and our uh, labor market is so precarious and we have many things like are falling apart, is that, oh my God, these problems are not just because of COVID-19. We have generations and decades of inaction or wrong decisions being taken or, or wrong dynamics working that have Put us in a position that right now we are, have all these, all all this feeling that everything is, it's for instance falling apart, you know, and there is uncertainty on how we are going to get jobs, or I'm going to get a house, how etc. So,
1: arguably, the not just the coronavirus, but leadership got us to where we are, and that's not a comment on any particular leader in any particular country, but I suspect you would all agree that we need different kind of leaders to get us somewhere else, somewhere better?
3: Um, I think that uh, first of all, we have to perhaps redefine the idea as well of what we mean by leadership. I think through this crisis and what Rosario is saying is very true is that it's highlighted a lot of the inequalities that have existed uh, for a long time and has been exacerbated. Uh, from domestic violence to uh poverty, access to health care, you know, clean water education, etc um so I think when we're thinking about leadership, we have to think about people who are not just the ones that are standing in front of our TV screens or who have you know, a million followers on Twitter, on Instagram, we have to look at people who are taking action because they are driven by a need to make things better now for the people who are in their communities. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, what David was saying about finding opportunity, and in that way, I see a lot of similarities between Um, artists and entrepreneurs I think you have to think creatively and I think you have to see things from a different perspective and be able to translate that into action and then to mobilize and motivate people to join you in your vision Um, so for me I think new kind of leadership is value-based uh is action driven it's uh driven by things like compassion and innovation and i think it also has to be cross-disciplinary i think people who are um creative in their thinking but also open in their approach to collaborating with others i think working in silos in the way that a lot of you know leaders have done in the past just doesn't work anymore. You have to be working across industries. You have to be sharing knowledge. You have to be collaborating and you have to be working towards a common goal together.
1: Let me pull on that one word you just used, which is trust. Uh, Trust and leadership go together or you don't have leadership. You certainly don't have action. How do you develop trust effectively in an organization?
0: Yeah, I think trust is something earned. I think that um, it starts with your people. I think it's educating your people. it's jumping in the trenches with them um, as a manager, as a leader, and it's showing them that you're willing to go to the ends of the earth for that and I think that quintessentially is what uh, makes a good leader. Now I do agree with with Beiju and I, I think that we spend too much time focusing on how many you know someone who's famous because they have so many likes on Twitter or Instagram, You know, I, I like to celebrate the scientists and, and those that are right now creating new and efficient ways to deal with waste or deal with electricity or um, those, the, those innovators, those people that, that spend their, their day in a sort of unsexy way uh, uh, of, of just grinding it out and, and creating value. And so I think to answer back to your question on trust, I think yes, it, you not only have to, as a leader, be out there to teach your team, but also think out in the world who, who you do business with, what you mean, what what's your vision, what's your passion, um, what's your moral compass, and uh, hold true to that. And I think in the world of working in the real world where it's not always a, that easy to navigate, I think having, holding those truths to be what guides you, I think is the way to uh, develop trust um, with your, teammates uh your coworkers and and, and those you want to do business with Rosie, how do you think
1: about leaders and, and how do you think about the leaders that we have today
2: um well, sometimes leadership is something that builds organically to, like re- within your community uh, and that is being done by the work you do and then people that start seeing that you are changing the world from actions you know and then they start um trying to follow that guide and also take action themselves. So I think that is one of the ways that we have seen that we see leadership, you know, and that is the way that we want to see leadership in the future, you know, when people is not necessarily saying, oh, I trust in the system, they can do everything. Because we we have realized that sometimes systems have failures and we need to be there, you know, we need to be eager to do things. We need to be ready to take action. Um, in many different ways. Even though if it's a very small action, we have to be ready to just, you know, and move from that observing or position to the doing position. So that one first, and then regarding to the leaders, definitely we we see different kind of leaders, and the people that, for instance, we have appointed are not necessarily responding to the things that that we aspire so i think those kind of factors also influence on the decision making process of the leaders or the people who are our decision makers so in the in those terms i think um it's also important for us to think about uh engaging on on the electoral processes i mean we have been in a position of you know thinking on this decision maker is not doing his job okay but for instance there there is people that have the qualities to do it you know and in my personal case i was so afraid to do politics at the beginning because i never wanted never wanted that my job on the grassroots be related with any political party or with any, you know, I didn't want people to think, oh, she's been doing that because she, want to, she wanted to be elected for this. But at some point you realize that as civil actor, you are sometimes uh, crashing again the, against the wall <laughs> and you can do many things. But at some point there is that decision that needs to be taken by someone who is being elected to take that decision. And that is a breaking point, breaking point for many of us millennials on thinking, for instance, to also aspire to be decision makers, you know, and, um, and, and try to, to be those people who, who have that ultimate decision. And instead of, move, uh, instead of taking it in order to continue with a current dynamic that, for instance, is not working, change it and create a new dynamic that is gonna respond better to the people's need and aspirations. Um, and I also heard once, um, I guess this uh, um, I'm not very really sure who, who said this, but it came into my mind all the time, that for instance, the best leaders are the ones who are not, des- not desiring to be in that position, you know, because it's not a self-interest that take them there. It's their job or their passion for the things they are doing, you know?
1: I think one of the things that each of you in very different ways demonstrates is that you don't have to be elected to be a leader. Indeed, that most leaders aren't elected. And even Rosie, to the point you just made, most people doing politics aren't politicians. And I think that's for the better, not for the worse. Let me thank all of you. Stay healthy, stay sane. Thank you. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.